0: Thanks indeed to the Gloryland Band, Dan and Bob and Hank and Boz, uh, members of our church and our sister church, Faith Christian Reform, just around the block. Uh, So, this is part four of our series on the life of King David of Israel. And if you were here last week, I left you all hanging right in the middle of the story of David and Goliath. Some people were kind of annoyed by that when they realized at the end of church that we didn't actually get to the end of the story. But the big idea last week was that everybody was obsessed with facing this insurmountable obstacle and giant enemy. The Israelite king, King Saul, the Israelite army, they were all in awe of Goliath and only this adolescent young man named David had the perspective to see over the giant and see the greatness and dignity and honor of God. And the way to attain that kind of perspective in life is not by puffing out your chest, not by standing on your tiptoes, not by getting on a higher platform. The way to get the perspective to see God first is by getting on your knees. But Goliath did cut a pretty imposing figure. The Bible records that he was... North of nine feet tall. I mean, that's really tall. This is a picture of Robert Ladlow, who was born about 100 years ago in Alton, Illinois. He was, in human history, the largest verified, the tallest verified man, eight feet, 11 inches tall. He is standing next to his dad in this picture in Alton, Illinois. Now, his dad is 5'11". That's about my height. He's just a little guy. Did I mention he's 8 foot 11? So imagine if these two guys were going to have a fight. Now, the great thing about Robert Ladlow is by all accounts, he was a very uh, gentle, dignified, kind human being. But could you imagine trying to fight him? I mean, he would just hold you at arm's length and you you couldn't even get within three feet of him. According to the Bible, Goliath had several inches on the very tall man in this photo. When Goliath came into battle, the Bible records, he wore more than 200 pounds of body armor. That's a lot of protection, okay? 200 pounds worth. In addition, he had giant bronze greaves protecting his legs. So short people like me couldn't even, like, you know, hack around at his knees. That part of him was protected. He had a bronze spear that he left slung between his back in addition to his, sh- his sword. And the end of his spear weighed 25 pounds. Have you ever picked up a 25-pound dumbbell to do curls? Now imagine that much weight was on the end of a 9-foot spear, and the person who had that spear could hurl it 40 yards with the accuracy of Aaron Rodgers. Well, maybe Jay Cutler. But. but he was pretty accurate, right? With his giant deadly spear. In addition, Goliath in front of him had a full-grown man who was his shield-bearer. So the guy, there was a guy standing in front of him with a six-foot-tall shield just to maybe protect any blind spot that this giant man had. If you were going to fight him, with his size, with his strength, with his armor, with his weaponry? How could you possibly win? How could Goliath lose? Who would be stupid enough? Pardon me if that's a bad word in your house. If you would be foolish enough to take this guy on. And yet in First Samuel 17, where we'll be reading today, David says this, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David is going to fight him. And after days and weeks of daily challenges to man-on-man combat, King Saul of Israel has to be sort of anxious about how this is going to go, but also breathes a sigh of relief that finally... This is going to go down. So Saul's solution, once he figures out that this is actually going to happen, is to try to give David at least something semi-comparable to prepare him and arm him. So the Bible records that Saul took his own clothes, put it on David, put his own armor on David, put his own bronze helmet on top of David's head, gave David his own kingly royal sword, And if you've heard this story in Sunday school, usually the picture of David at this point is like all this stuff is just way too big for him, right? Like Saul's clothes, like he can't even pick up the sword, and like his clothes are hanging on the ground. The Bible does not say this. Like David was probably full grown, and we'll learn later in the story, he's a guy who's plenty strong, even for a young man. The Bible says that David is not used to these things. Continuing with the story, David says, "'I cannot go in these,' he said to Saul, "'because I am not used to them.' So he took them off." Now, does this seem crazy? He's still going to fight the guy, and he's giving up every piece of armor, every piece of 3,000 years ago, what was modern military technology. He is putting it on the ground and leaving it in Saul's tent. "'But then he took his shepherd's staff in his hand,' And shows five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Now the scene here is that about three quarters of a mile away on two adjacent hilltops the armies of the Israelites and the Philistines are encamped and in the, in the bottom of the valley is where they would theoretically meet for the battle. Okay, So David receives this at the top of the hill and now he's trudging down the hill and he's coming to the place where Goliath every day would stand from the bottom of the valley and hurl his insults up at the Israelite army. Now David has five smooth stones and a slingshot and a shepherd's stick. And his confidence, notice that he didn't just take one stone, he took five. That's the difference between foolishness and confidence. <laughs> All right? He takes five stones. Furthermore, he has confidence in what he can do with those stones and in, with his sling. Now, David was from the town of Bethlehem, uh, which is in the territory of the tribe of Judah in ancient Israel. And just adjacent to his hometown of Bethlehem is the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, Now, earlier in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, there's an accounting of the type of soldiers that fought in the Israeli army all those thousands of years ago. And there is this little phrase in Judges chapter 20, which is this. Among the Israelite army, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed. Hooray for the left-handed people today. (laughs) Who were left-handed each of whom were from the tribe of Benjamin and could sling a stone at a hare. Like a hare, not a rabbit hare. A hare and not miss. So, just to recap, in the Israelite army, there was a special ops force of left-handed Benjamites from near David's hometown who were so skilled with a sling that the report on the street was that You know, at 50 yards, they could hurl a rock at your pinky and not miss. Was David trained by those guys? Was David left-handed? I don't know, but he was pretty confident with a sling. So maybe he knew a little something that nobody else knew that day. It's about to go down here. Meanwhile, the scripture says, the Philistine with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer and closer to David, right? These two guys coming down the sides of their hill. They are going to meet at the bottom of the hill. He looked David over, saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. yea, David. And Goliath despised him. Uh, You're going to be the voice of Goliath, please. So if you could read meanly and nastily. (laughs) Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? His shepherd's stick, right? And then the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And then David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and with spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. He's so nice and gentle. <laughs> this very day, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by a sword or by a spear or any technology that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you all into our hands. Trash-talking is really fun. Present day, 3,000 years ago, the difference of biblical trash-talking is biblical trash-talking happens because God is the subject, right? This is not Michael Jordan saying as he runs down the court, I'm going to dunk on you next time down the court. This is David not saying, I'm the best slingshotter in all of Israel. Maybe he is. This is David saying, you are not going to win because the honor and dignity of God will not allow you to win. Big difference here. Now, this is a violent world 3,000 years ago. I mean, David, the man after God's own heart, has no problems talking about putting Goliath in the dust and chopping his head off. I mean, this is scary, bloody stuff. And yet in our own world, we live in some scary and bloody times. I heard on the radio uh, just this week folks who are reminiscing um, about the feeling that was in the air in 1968, the year of societal unrest and Uh, unthinkable assassinations in this country and the feeling in the air of right here and right now between what's happened in Baton Rouge and Falcon Heights, Minnesota, what's happening on a weekly basis in our own city, what's happening in France or Munich, Germany. I mean, there is so much happening that I, I confess to my own, I have a hard time even... Finding room in my little heart to, to care about it all. Have you, have you felt this way? There's like so much news and so much horrible stuff in the world. Like I don't personally have the capacity to give it all like the, the compassion and sorrow that it deserves. So the violence of our age even though the technologies are different. Because human nature has not changed. Perhaps it's not so much different than the feeling that was in the air 3,000 years ago. It struck me this week, though, that in this violent time, that Goliath and David had so very different approaches. Goliath had all this latest and greatest armor and weaponry and technology and it was all weaponry that had been forged in fire. I'm guessing there's no blacksmiths in the room. Blacksmith, anyone? No. No blacksmiths in the room, right? But Goliath had all this stuff that 3,000 years ago was new to humanity, to be able to put steel and fashion it and form it and turn it into an amazing blade or an amazing spearhead. Everything that Goliath had was forged in the fire. It had been made newly and recently. It was the latest and greatest. David, on the other hand, when he chose a weapon, chose these five smooth stones. How do small stones get smooth in a river? Overnight? In a week? Thousands and thousands of years. Who knows how many years those particular stones lay in wait for this moment. And David, his own skill, was he just blindly trusting? Man, I hope I have the moonshot. I hope I have a one in the million. No, David had confidence because he spent week after week tending sheep, year after year in the monotony of God's training ground for him in the desert and in quiet and lonely places. And who knows how many millions of times his sling went round and round before this day. Goliath had the latest and greatest, what was born of the fire. David had time and God's discipline and training and the forces of nature smoothing these stones with the simple gift of water. That is what David chose to enter this battle. Goliath had the firepower. David had practice and five smooth stones. Here's how the story comes to its apex. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And then reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without even a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. This is how I think David's pretty strong. He's picking up the giant sword. And after he had killed him, uh, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned tail and ran. David throws the stone. Goliath hits the deck. He potentially should have had a slightly bigger helmet. Right? But David sees the one chink in the armor and with deadly accuracy makes his shot count. Goliath falls to the ground. David picks up this massive sword. This is the way people did things 3,000 years ago. Kills him and then cuts off his head. And we know from later stories, David brought Goliath's head with him after the day to show and demonstrate, who's the guy? I'm the guy. Right? This is... The Philistine army, when they see what has happened to their mighty man of war, they freak out, right? They just start scrambling over each other. They think, if they can beat Goliath, they're going to kill us all for sure. There's no battle. They just turn tail and run, and the Israelites chase them down and mow them down on this particular day. And David's words, that he would chop off the head of the giant and that they would chase them and decimate them, they come true. Once again, David's confidence was not in himself. In his skill, in his training, David's confidence was in God's reputation. Now, I could make this a a decent sermon at this point about defeating the giants that you're facing in your life, but that's not where we're going here. I could say David had a big problem, right? Goliath. But David had faith, and you have big problems. I have big problems. And we need faith, and we can take down these giant problems. There's quite a bit of truth in that. And maybe that is the case for you and what you are currently facing. But some of us who have lived following Jesus for a while, for quite a while... There have been times in our life where we have faced a monumental challenge or a giant of some kind or a grief or a loss or something just goofy or sinful that we have done. We have faced something in our life and then we have taken our best shot at it and we have let our stone go and we have prayed and we have hoped and we have had faith and then we still missed. And the giant didn't come tumbling down and the giant didn't Die in a day, and the giant wasn't immediately defeated. A quick and decisive victory is not what is promised to us as Christians in every and all situations. Does that sound like bad news? It's the beginning of the good news. We are not promised a quick and easy and decisive victory in each and every challenge and difficult situation that we face, brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not live for victory like David did in this situation. Instead, we have something better. We live from victory. You hear the difference here? We're all facing stuff. We don't necessarily live for victory over every circumstance and situation. We live from the victory of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who gives us the grace to live through and beyond everything that you and I are facing here today. David won an awesome victory over Goliath that day. The Israelite army won an awesome victory over the Philistines. But Jesus Christ, through the cross and the empty grave, has won a much more awesome victory. That's the good news. There's a contemporary author whose name is Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he writes business books. He's uh, kind of dabbles in social science. A few years ago, he came out with a book called David and Goliath. It's a kind of okay book. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stories in it. But his thesis in the book is that when folks are underdogs or face some kind of deficit in life, like say you have a learning disability or dyslexia, that it's very often because of the deficit that you face, the challenge that you face, your difficulty, that you can find some new or creative or inventive way to push through your challenge into the rest of life. He tells several stories about business executives who have huge personal problems who get through those problems and achieve worldly success. And of course, the first story he tells, Malcolm Gladwell, is about David and Goliath. And his thesis is that, no, it wasn't that David was just an underdog. Don't feel sorry for him that he didn't have Goliath's military technology because David was pushed to get creative with the minimal weapons that he had. Now, there's nothing spiritual about this book. There's nothing, like, particularly God-oriented about this book. He gives a very humanistic explanation about why underdogs triumph and why David triumphed on this particular day. There's a glimmer of truth in this idea, however, that it's through our very weak spots and challenges and personal deficiencies... And I could even go so far as to say our sin and moral failure, it's through our issues and our problems that create within us the opening and the window for us to know that we need God's grace and God's presence and God's love as much as we do. Do you hear that, friends? How do I know that I need God? Because I'm aware of what a jerk I am. Right? If I was a perfectly good Christian boy every day of my life, would I know I need God as much? Is this an excuse to go sin and do bad stuff? Absolutely not. By nature, you have already done more than enough stuff to let yourself know that you really need God. Amen? <laughs> and through our shortcomings, through our problems... And with Christian maturity, we grow in our understanding of how desperately we need the grace, the power, the presence of God, because it's so much beyond what you or I have going on by ourselves. We are tempted always to go seeking after a silver bullet, something that will solve our situation, that will bring a quick end to the giant we are facing. The Christian life is not full of silver bullets It is full of years out in the desert practicing throwing those stones. And then the time comes where God brings your personal experience, including your failures, and those things that he has taught you to practice during the hard times, where he brings all of that to bear for some reason that probably sitting here today none of us is even aware of right now. Goliath and the world majors in weapons of violence. How can I win a quick and easy, decisive, destructive victory? But in the church, following in David's footsteps, following in Jesus' footsteps, we major in weapons of grace. We all have a fight to fight hear that loud and clear. But what you choose to arm yourself with, how you choose to pursue the fight and the challenges in your life, that is what makes all the difference. What are the weapons of grace? It's different for all of us because we all have different spiritual gifts. We all have different hearts. We all have different Aptitudes. We all have different passions and enthusiasms. We all have different experiences. The grace God gives each of us is all different. But rest assured, friends, if you are following Jesus, you are armed to do battle with the weapons of grace. One possible weapon might be an ear that is quick to listen, a tongue that is slow to speak. Another possible weapon of grace is a desire to serve anonymously. Another weapon of grace might simply be your capacity to get dirty, to do simple things. Another weapon of grace might be your ability to be patient and absorb the anger of other people. The weapons of grace are difficult to come by. It takes time to lay your hands on them. They are spiritual in nature. They are never destructive. They are always constructive. They are never reactive and defensive. They are always proactive. Weapons of violence impress the human eye. Weapons of grace impress the eyes of God. It could be that you wield the weapons of grace simply over a cup of coffee or by sitting down to listen. But you know, and the Holy Spirit will make it plain to you if you ask for his help, the Holy Spirit will whisper to you and how to do this daily battle with your particular weapons of grace. There's a chaplain um, in England whose name is Taylor Smith. He's an Anglican chaplain. He works with uh, the armed forces of the United Kingdom. Uh, He reported a little conversation with a young military man that went like this Bishop Smith says, When you think of the cross of Christ, soldier, what do you see? The soldier answered, I see Christ. I see the two thieves, one on his left, one on his right. What else did you see? Says the bishop. Well, I remember that there were soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. And the bishop says, If that is all you see, my friend, I foresee that you will have trouble with the Christian life. In my old age, when I see the cross of Christ, with all of what you have already mentioned, I also see... Bishop Taylor Smith, for I am being crucified with Christ. Friends, that is a wonderful and true little anecdote and conversation. Bishop Taylor Smith sees not only Jesus dying from the weapons of violence, but he sees himself being crucified to his old nature. And he sees himself rising up to new life as Jesus himself was reborn and came out of the grave. Now, David, all those years ago, he was a conqueror versus Goliath. But according to the scriptures, you and I are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. You might be struggling. You might be anxious. You might be... You might be, feel as if you are dying right now. My counsel to you would not necessarily pr- to pray God, make this go away, solve this, fix this. That's how we instinctively pray, right? But to instead pray, God, through this, make me more than a conqueror. Through this, arm me with the weapons of grace. We're at the end of the story now, friends lest David get a big head for the awesome thing that he's done, for the great military victory that he's won, should recognize that at the end of this story, King Saul of Israel still can't remember this guy's name. Like, David has been his music therapist, David has just won this awesome victory, and King Saul is still like, who's that guy again? The biblical account ends this way. Uh, Will you be the voice of King Saul on this one? Here we go. Whose son are you, young man? This is great. Saul asked him, and David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, David hasn't had many lines in the Bible so far, but he's done some awesome stuff. He is still being overlooked. But that's about to come to an end. If you come back next week, we'll get to the next part of the story where David becomes the Israeli idol of the ancient world. But for now, even in his being overlooked, it's okay. Because God has won a great victory. And God is getting the honor. And that's how God's grace works for each of us in a nutshell. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for the mysterious ways in which you work. There are stories in the Bible where your victory and your power come suddenly and swiftly and clearly. And there are stories in their own lives in which your transformation more regularly comes slowly and with great difficulty and with painful cooperation from we, your disciples. God... Teach us and give us wisdom and courage to cooperate with you. Arm us with the weapons of grace. And as we walk into our own futures, we pray that somehow, even though we are imperfect people, that we will be known as men and women and children who live after your own heart as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, a couple announcements before we take our offering today. Um, number one, at the close of worship, the Gloryland Band is going to pr- play for eh, an extra 10 minutes or so when worship is done. So if you have like what you've heard and want to stick around, uh, they are going to be in here doing that. So consider yourself invited. Secondly, um, after worship today at 1130 in the garden room, we have one of our uh, missionaries, who is here um, to speak and share some updates about their work. Um, If you are in the room, I invite you to stand up. Our live stream audience uh, is just seeing me at this point. Um, But uh, our missionary friends uh, have been members of this church, and uh, over the last six years or so, we have been supporting, and from a distance... Uh, praying and, and uh, mentoring and supporting in many ways. Um, a lot has happened in their lives. They're here to share about their work um, in a country where, uh, in public situations and on the internet, it's not cool to say what's going on. Um, it would be great if uh, you can hang around. They're going to talk for about 30 minutes, and uh, their children are here as well. I think it would be a great encouragement for their whole family if we can be there to listen and support. So from 1130 to noon in the garden room. Is that all clear? Sorry it's unclear on live stream, but, hey, it's the modern world. Uh, the peace of Christ, the, the love of the church be with you. Um, invite you in this next moment as the deacons come forward uh, to be generous. We support not just the work of the congregation here, but the worldwide body of Christ, our denomination. And uh, the only way this happens is through God giving and us cooperating and passing on. So please be generous.